Hello and welcome to Sanfran Cut. It's a podcast for developers about building great products. Today, I'm excited to welcome Chris Byler. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for the invitation. Great. Can you please just go ahead and introduce yourself? Okay, I'm Chris. I uh, live in Belgium about 20, 25 years ago. I started playing with Linux and I realized that open source was basically what I wanted to do for a very long time after that. Uh, actually started out as a developer doing projects in Java and C and then other languages. And as I progressed in my career, I started doing more and more operational work, mostly because I basically ended up being the person who knew how to make clusters, who knew how to wreck machines. So I rolled into a more operational role by accident. And then some 12, 13 years ago, I spoke a lot of conferences on how we did high availability, how we did scalability, how we did automation and a lot of those topics. And I bumped into Patrick Dubois at some point at a cloud camp in Antwerp. And we had this crazy idea to say, hey, what about we bring together like the 70 best of our friends to a small conference and get like both operational background, agile background, cloud people and developers in one room. And that's basically how we started DevOps days in 2009. So I was already doing similar work before that, but since then we also had a name to call what we were doing, DevOps. So that's how we got there. And since then, well, since before that, I've basically been helping organizations to deliver software in a better way using open source tools. And that pretty much summarizes who I am and what I've been doing. Great introduction. And can you tell us about the reality of DevOps days in COVID times? My last DevOps days was New York 2020. I haven't been to one since. I went to OSMC last, but beginning of the month in, in Nuremberg, and that was like the first in-person conference I've been to. But online conferences and that kind of things, really, it's not the same. I mean, the real power of a DevOps days was pretty much the open spaces, getting to the hallway tracks, getting to talk with people who have similar experiences, different experience, who can share ideas and where you can learn from each other. And that's really, really hard to mimic in an online setup. Things like panels, things like discussions, things like podcasts like this, where you have one-on-one -on -one conversations are much more interesting to me and to a lot of people than just somebody sitting before a screen and showing some slides. There's still DevOps days popping up left and right. Some of them actually happen in person. I think DevOps days Tel Aviv was last week and a lot of people were really happy about it, but it was an in-person event and we'll have to see how things will evolve in the next couple of months, but it's not as trivial. I know there's DevOps days that have been postponing already three to four times. We are now over two years behind schedule on their original plan. So it's not easy. Yeah, we are all hopeful that that will restore. And yeah, I couldn't agree more with you on that, that the best part of conferences is generally that when you spend those, you know, three, four, five hours talking with a bunch of people and you didn't realize that, you know, it has been all night that you have been yeah, talking. One of the main things that you wanted to bridge and do with DevOps days is actually building that bridge, <laughs> as I said, between, you know, operations, DevOps, Agile is, you know, practices of like organizing work and structuring work. You gave a talk a couple of times on that topic of introducing teams, engineering teams, not just development teams, but DevOps and ops teams and 
everyone to CI and CD as a topic. And based on our conversation that we had prior to this call, it seems it's spot on. You immediately caught some of the things that I also experienced as we were building our teams. So can you give us an overview how you see what's the best practice? A lot of the work I do is consulting, which means I end up walking into organizations that are struggling, that are failing, and that actually need help, which does mean in a lot of cases, I only see the shit that's around. <laughs> Clear. But when we get called in, when people are struggling, it often is because they have a problem they need to solve. They cannot get to production at the speed they want. They have stability problems in production. They have basically problems delivering software. And it's happened more than often that you start talking with the different people in the teams and you realize that their whole effort into trying to deliver software has not included operational people. It has just been developers doing some testing, doing some automated testing, then building a pipeline. They've been doing something which they call continuous integration, but how it's being deployed, how it's being delivered, and what the impact is of them accelerating in some ways or doing a different approach totally was ignored by the people, the rest of the team. And those were really painful ones. On the other side, the successful transformations, if you want to call them that, it's the ones where the operation people were involved and they upfront were like, so we want to automate faster. We want to build things and be prepared for what's coming. And we want to be able to support our developers team with a lot of new things. And when you can take one of those teams and say, hey, we're going to do infrastructure as code, and we're not only going to do infrastructure as code, but we're also going to do continuous delivery on your infrastructure. And we're going to teach you how continuous delivery works. We're going to teach you concepts like trunk-based development and how you do promotions and how you do test coverage and all of those things. And when you get teams who understand that, it's going to be much, much, much easier for those people to also support their developer teams and say, hey, well, how do you deal with this? How do you deal with that? Because they know they've experienced it themselves. That I've seen work so many times much better than the approach where the whole CI, the whole CD ecosystem is just something the developers have been thinking of and not having included the rest of the organization up to a point where it becomes really painful. You see they haven't included those people. And actually the trick to get more of an SRE style role, more of a operational engineering style role to understand and to learn those things is, so your CI CD infrastructure, that needs to also be something where you can do continuous delivery on. You should be capable of constantly upgrading knowing that you can release at any point in time. And getting those people to get to that level is giving them a head start so that they actually become fans of the whole ecosystem and they start to understand like, yeah, this is how it works. We've seen it, we can show it to other people. And that really helps organizations forward. But sometimes you come into an organization already way too late to get that going. We've just released the CICD for Mono Repos ebook. It's for software engineers who are evaluating or want to optimize the monorepo way of software development. You'll learn how to build a monorepo-first CI-CD pipeline and have a functional microservice application built, tested, and deployed from a monorepo. Check it out on our website, semaphoreci.com backslash resources backslash monorepo dash CI-CD. And in this more operational side of things, I remember that maybe 
six or seven years ago as infrastructure as code was becoming to be a reality for more teams. If you compare those times to maybe some teams that you can work with today, what are some patterns and RT patterns and how are things changing in that area? How easy it is to get people to jump on that train? Uh, five, six years ago, huh, I probably need to look back longer. There was a fun thread on Twitter a couple of weeks ago where the CNCF kind of defined what GitOps was about. And a lot of the people that have been around doing infrastructure as code for ages were like, yeah, but this is what we've been doing for close to a decade and a half. Like we do desired state, we do version control, we do actually some tests on this. And that was even, I think, missing in the CNCF definition. We do tests on what we do and then it gets deployed and it stays in that state. And we were capable of reprovisioning things. We're capable of doing all of this automated. The honest remark there is I haven't seen a lot of organizations who are capable of doing continuous delivery on their infrastructure as code, but they are there and do exist. Sadly, what I see now, I see mostly people that are struggling as if they claim we do GitOps, they do uh, continuous isolation because they basically have multiple branch scales running all over the place. And then they have some operator doing Git pull and deploying their state of the application in their container ecosystem, which is in a way I understand where the problem space is, where they're coming from, but that is absolutely kind of the opposite goals of doing continuous delivery of your infrastructure because like the clue and the really important thing is testing and the other part is we do trunk-based development so if you have multiple long-running branches you're going to shoot yourself in the foot at some point so i think a lot of those things are circular movements where people bump into a problem space they look into ways how to solve them within that problem space don't know yet that within their old community that there's been people who solved similar problems before with other technologies and a lot of those people are going like so yes we've solved this problem before if you just take this this and this pattern and you reuse your tools the other way you kind of have solved it but they go out and they start building new tools where they then each time do some incremental improvements but sometimes forget about hey this already exists the joke about it is those who don't know Unix are doomed to reinvent it. And then a lot of people ask poorly. I think that is still happening with every single ecosystem. The only thing we should look for is like, there are obviously always incremental improvements, but what are there exactly? And why are people trying to solve a problem the way they currently solve it? That is, to me, what's really the important part. Like, what is actually the problem you're trying to solve? Yeah, I have seen that and actually talked with a lot of guests on the podcast about those cycles that we have in the industry. Do you think it's also related to the generations of people coming into the industry and not knowing what was done before and what is available? It's definitely to do with new people joining the industry, not knowing what exists. And it's also getting impossible to know what exists. I mean, there are so many things moving. There are so many things popping up. There is, however, a struggle where a lot of those people coming to the organizations and say, hey, we know to do things and just forget about there's other people also out there who have experience, who learn things, not maybe with the technology that they've played with, but the patterns are going to be there. That definitely is important that sometimes knowing the pattern and seeing what's happening is much more important than knowing the specific tools and figuring how to do such and such configuration with such and such tool. But we've seen over years that a lot of what is needed in organizations is really teaching people. We do these things because we are going to implement this feature because if we don't, this is going to fail. New and young people 
in a way don't have that operational experience. They haven't seen things failed yet. They have seen how they build things, but as they haven't got the age yet, they haven't actually been around long enough to see things fail. That creates conflict, that creates struggle because they think things are not going to fail or they think they have the really awesome solution to the problem where people who have sometimes more experience or different experiences say like, yes, but maybe hold it different because you're going to hurt yourself. And it's a challenge in both ways because on one hand, the new people need to accept that input. On the other side, the old people need to accept like there's obviously, like I said before, incremental improvements and they could learn from each other. But it still is a hard problem, like preventing people from failing fast. We've just released the CICD for MonoRepos ebook. It's for software engineers who are evaluating or want to optimize the MonoRepo way of software development. You'll learn how to build a MonoRepo first CICD pipeline and have a functional microservice application built, tested, and deployed from a MonoRepo. Check it out on our website, semaphoreci.com backslash resources backslash monorepo dash CICD. Some analogy that might work, might not. Generally, when I'm speaking with developers, that, you know, test-driven approach and, you know, tests are here to help, you know, and guard you. So you stay stable, so you also stay sane while you're developing and changing things and all that. And then reality is, from what I'm hearing, still maybe like almost 15 years since I finished university, still majority of universities are not teaching testing. You kind of can finish your whole curriculum and you can boost around your, I touch this many programming languages, but you almost never wrote a single unit test that you were taught, you know, to do in some systematic way and you understand what are the differences and so on. Can you do some mapping, how that maps to the DevOps world? Because just an example, and now I remember that maybe it was like 2011 when we were embracing Chef and infrastructure as code. And folks who are just now entering the industry We'll see GitOps, GitOps, GitOps all over the way. <laughs> and why would they go back? Why would they, you know, get those, you know, very outdated, you know, books potentially? Because this is now their reality. How do you see education in this area of DevOps and what are good patterns? You touched on a couple of things. First of all, if I look at the industry, if I look at our customer base, the people who claim to do GitOps because they have a cube stack and they need it, it that's not 10% of the world. That's not 10% of the customer base. So people coming from university and having been taught GitOps, they basically fall into this gap like, but this is not what they told us it would look like. The real world is different. Yes, there's people who are doing it this way, but that is not the majority they see. There's already a gap between what the schools are teaching because they want to do the new technology thing and what they actually should be teaching. The second gap is, you said they don't cover testing and things like that. I can perfectly imagine that but they don't do, but they don't even cover the operational part. Most bachelor and master programs I see, they're focused on building things, not running things. So there is a huge gap. I mean, I really don't know a lot of educations where you can actually become site reliability engineering or that kind of roles. They just don't exist as far as I know. So yes, if we're educating people to a point where they become software developers and their goal is to write code and get that out there, then we're doing something 
wrong with education. The second part is it's not only education which is a problem. It also is how a lot of the software projects are being financed. If you ask the average business, they want functionality. And if you give them a hundred thousand euro budget, they're going to spend 99,999 euros on functionality. Then they're going to realize like, oh, we need to keep this maintained and up and running for the next couple of years. And they realize they have one euro cent left to do so. And that's going to be a problem. Even the bigger problem is when somebody asks you, can you build this piece of software? And you go explain them and say, sure, we can do this. We're going to spend this amount of time into writing it and this amount of time testing it. They're going to say, no, 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 don't spend this amount of time testing it because they don't understand how software deployment works. They don't understand that it is needed. And your testing budget from that point of view is always going to be under pressure. You're never going to have sufficient budget to test it the way you want. I haven't even touched on security yet. That's an even larger non-existing budget because it's built in, right? It's by default. That's what the average organization expects. So not only schools and universities are not teaching people how to build software and how to do the whole life cycle around it, we also fail to teach the people that come out and that end up in the business that, hey, software development is something that has a lot much more you need to think about than just building the code and just having the functionality there. You need to talk about those non-functionals. You need to talk about how to do testing and how to automate your testing. And if you don't do that, those people will not understand. Still on a daily base, you have customers and organizations internally struggling with budgets because we've allocated this amount of money to build this. Why do you need 10 times more? And that's the daily struggle. So if you have that problem, schools are not going to tell you, hey, you need to teach testing because they see like, yeah, but nobody spends enough time on it. It's not important enough for us to spend time on. And that kind of gets you in a situation where people are not going to be taught about it because other people are not paying for it. It's a sad situation. Something I have seen recently flying around, I guess it's in the area of like marketing guides, how to manage up, how to manage your boss to give you a budget for this or that. And as you said that you have been working with these struggling organizations, which, you know, may sound bad, but it's actually really exciting. That's the best place to learn, <laughs> get those experiences. Do you have some, you know, tips, tricks, experiencing war stories of managing upwards and helping engineers in those organizations get those budgets or reassign those budgets to things that are important? Yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> so the scary part is I've got a couple of cases where the actual transformation started happening after a near-death experience, where senior management realized that they needed to start managing things differently because if they kept going the way they were going, they would go out of business. So the kind of near-death experience, like having experienced real pain and having seen the almost disaster level business impact, it's a really good way to let people think about how to deal with test coverage, how to deal with resilience, how to deal with availability and quality in general. But let's hope that not every organization has to experience that near-death thingy. The thing that does work, however, is if you have product teams where the product owners are involved in creating the backlog and stuff, that you put those people on call. Because those are typically the people who forget to prioritize non-functional requirements, who forget 
to spend time on test coverage. And once you get those people to be woken up at 3 a.m. on a Sunday morning because there's yet another out-of-memory issue, which the previous group of on-call engineers has been nagging about for at least a year that it needs to be fixed because they're being paged. And when that happens for the third Sunday in a row, that is when those product owners start realizing, oh, why am I being paged for this? This needs to be fixed. And I experimented with that concept with a couple of teams already a couple of years ago, like six, seven years ago in the Netherlands. And we saw change happen because you see those non-functional requirements. You see those bugs that are basically getting people out of bed. You see them eventually being solved. And that improves the quality. And that means that people are finally starting to realize like, well, there is a hidden cost for people being paged. There is a hidden cost for having to use much more resources than we should be using because there's resource allocation issues in our code. I think that is really a good tip if you can get those people to be the ones who get broken up when there's a problem, things might change. Yeah. I mean, you could say that we are almost a species, you know, when do you change your diet? Well, after, uh, you know, you get a stroke or, you know, a heart attack. For a lot of people, that is the wake up moment of like changing. I'm not saying that that's the best practice, but yeah, that's the analogy. So <laughs> vivid and direct. Yeah. A great advice on essentially blasting that information beyond just engineering team. So it becomes, you know, visible. A question related to this. I know that we have internally kind of the every couple of years as our teams hit some next milestone, we end up, maybe it's just us, rediscovering and reevaluating that budget for the maintenance. Because as you say, you know, functionality, 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 and there is always some crunch and there was some functionality. And then there is a the backlog of things. Just today we have been talking that, you know, we would want to have, you know, a number of metrics regarding our databases or how systems are operating. Not critical, but would help us, but they are being pushed under the carpet for a long time. So just today we have been talking about that percentage. Okay. How to allocate our time, how to have those iterations, you know, every N weeks, every fifth week, we have a budget for a week to focus on something. And then we do that over time and then it kind of disappears. <laughs> and then we have to reinstate that budget. What are your experiences in that area? I've seen the same. Not with doing it every couple of weeks, but like it's really hard trying to say, hey, we're going to spend 10 or 15 or even 20% of our budget into actually doing continuous improvement because the pressure from the product owners that they end up pushing features, feature, features. And you really have to have a strong commitment from your management that you should be doing this. And once you have that, it often stays happening. But then you get this big customer who walks in and they get prioritized and then it changes again. There's typically, unless you can put like it's really to these couple of people are only going to do this, it typically doesn't work. And even then they get reprioritized. So I've yet to seen organizations that can really do continuous improvement on their code base. It's as you described in, in a lot of cases, it goes good for a couple of months and then it sadly disappears again. Yeah, so reinstating it, reinstalling the practice is just, you know, one of the ways to do it. Yeah. And you're having such a vast experience in the DevOps area looking forward. You mentioned SRE as a role, which is 
you know, to my understanding, how I'm following like kind of a newer role, which is in some organizations becoming, you know, more of a, I don't know if it's uh, good to say mainstream. So DevOps really never was a role. And the way Google has defined site reliability engineering, it, it's pretty much what they claim is their implementation of DevOps. But if you look at describing what somebody does, such reliability engineering has much better description of what most senior system engineers are doing as opposed to telling that they're doing a DevOps engineering role, which is still like, what is a DevOps engineer? Is that a Java developer who knows how to deploy code? Or is that a Linux engineer who knows how to debug stack trace? And it's none of it. To me, a DevOps engineer is not a role. So in a way, if we talk about people in this industry, then business critical engineering, site reliability engineering has much more of an explanation of what people actually are doing or supposed to be doing. Yeah, you put it nicely and got me thinking. I mean, it has been a struggle with a lot of people that we have been talking to. We are talking about DevOps and people are saying, hi guys, meeting a customer. This is a John from DevOps team. There is that struggle of understanding of what are his area expertise <laughs> and what is he responsible for. And it ends up varying vastly between teams. So when organizations come to me and I say, we want to do this DevOps thing, what I typically tell them is, don't call it a DevOps project. Call it, we're going to do engineering 2.0 or whatever. And then cherry pick from all the things you've seen, what you want to achieve as an organization. And throw that out as a plan. And people might end up saying, hey, well, this is DevOps. Like, okay, good. But if you say, hey, we're going to do this DevOps thing, what you'll end up is six months of discussion about what does that really mean? Whereas you say we're going to do faster delivery, then you have a goal set. You know, these, these, and these are the things we want to achieve. Those are the steps. And you're on a journey as an organization. And that is basically what DevOps is about, improving yourself, improving quality of your software delivery there. But setting out that goal as this is our organizational role and we call it this, is going to be much more struggle less than saying we're going to do DevOps. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. These are very nice closing lines, <laughs> the explanation. Thank you very much for your time. Yeah, we all hope the DevOps days and all other live events will resume soon. But yeah, only we can do is keep our fingers crossed. Thank you again so much for your time. You're welcome.